Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody. It's really lovely to have you join us um, for one of our regular practice manager update webinars. And um, today we're really pleased we've got um, Becky Protasaltis from the um, Medical Examination Service to talk to us a little bit later. Um, and we've also got a new member of um, Wessex LMC's teams, Will Howard. Dr. Will Howard, really pleased Will's um, with us today. Um, Michelle Lombardi, always pleased to see Michelle. And Helene is still hiding. Is she coming? Is she coming? <laughs> so Helene is, is, is lurking somewhere. Here she is. Um, our practice nurse advisor. Um, so as usual, we've got a little bit of a roundup about what sort of things um, we think are current topics at the moment. We're going to start off with Becky. So Becky, you're going to talk to us a little bit about um, the medical examination service. And I've got a slide that we're going to share, haven't we? So good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Louise said, my name is Becky Protopsaltis. It's hard to say, but <laughs> um, and I am the regional medical examiner for the Southwest for NHS England and Improvement. Um, I have a dual role, so I am also I also run the East Dorset Medical Examiner Service uh, for University Hospitals Dorset. And I just want to say thank you to Louise and to Wessex LMC for letting me come on today to chat to everyone about extending the medical examiner service to non-acute settings. Um, I'm aware that maybe you will not really know very much about it. And I'm hoping to kind of try and demystify it a bit for you all today and answer any questions you might have. But really, just to show my face, let you know that we're around um, and that if anyone has any questions in the months to come as it's being implemented, we are always available to answer questions. Um, for those people attending today that are in the Southeast region, your regional medical examiner officer is Amanda Dooley, and she unfortunately can't be here today, but she's more than happy for me to give out her contact details for any of you who might like to talk to her. So um, I've got a few slides, and I thought I'd just run through them all rattle through them fairly quickly, try and demystify it, and then I'm happy to take any questions you might have. So obviously, like I said, I'm not sure how much everybody knows about medical examiners. Essentially, um, they've come out of a number of high-profile independent inquiries, the, the biggest of which was the Shipman Inquiry, um, and they form part of the Department of Health and Social Care's death certification reform programmes. Um, other, as you can see on the, on the slide, other Inquiries include a Gosport, uh, Midstaff, Small Bay. And what came out of them a lot of the time was that there needed to be urgent reformation of, of death certification, really. So it's it's part of a bigger piece of work, including things like digitalization of the medical certificate of cause of death that's issued. Um, and it's been a work in progress for about 10 years now, I would say. There's been a number of pilots, mainly in Sheffield and Gloucester, that have been running for a decade. Um, and since 2019, it's, it's started to gain momentum. So why do we need medical examiners? Um, the purpose of the medical examiner system is, as it says on the slide, is designed to, to put bereaved people at the center of the process, to give them an opportunity to ask questions, to raise concerns. Um, we are aware, very aware, that in primary care, that's, that's often easier for the bereaved to do. In acute trusts, it's not always been quite so quite so simple and straightforward to contact the relevant teams. Um, medical examiners are designed to enhance safeguards for the public and healthcare providers by giving improved and consistent scrutiny of all non-coronial deaths. So there's a little bit of an overlap um, between non-coronial and coronial, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, 
and also to improve the quality and accuracy of medical certification of cause of death and to ensure that coronial referrals are appropriate. And this also ties in with the, the recent change of the cause of death list has been rewritten and updated. Um, and we've also now got new notification of death guidelines since 2019 to refer to the coroner, uh, which was designed to kind of um, get rid of local, local rules and regulations and, and kind of standardise it as a nation. Next slide, please, Louise. So another reason we need medical examiners is to help support local learning and improvement. So in acute trusts, that means that if a medical examiner uh, raises a concern about the level of care, uh, it will go through the trust's clinical governance processes. And, and similarly, when it rolls out to primary care and non-acute deaths, um, you know, we will be able to just alert practices to any concerns that the medical examiner might have found. And that would that will give practices an opportunity to, to, to look at it as part of their own morbidity and mortality processes. It helps to align with related initiatives such as the learning from deaths work that's been going on for the last few years, and it helps to improve the quality of mortality data. So what does medical examiner scrutiny consist of? So it's got three components, essentially. And the first component is a proportionate review of the medical record. Um, and that's undertaken by a medical examiner. Uh, medical examiners are often, more often than not at the start, were hospital consultants, but increasingly are GPs. In my other role at University Hospitals Dorset, we now have two GP medical examiners, um, and they will be working with me towards rolling out across Dorset. So that's going to be fantastic. The other component, the second component, is interaction with the attending doctor. Um, in, in acute trusts, that's usually the junior doctor coming and attending. We're very aware that in primary care, GPs do not have the capacity to undertake extra workload or to take up any more time in their day. And so there will not always be a requirement for a conversation with the medical examiner. Often all we would need would be a proposed cause of death for the work to start, play, to start taking place. And the third component is interaction with the bereaved. So we speak to each and every um, bereaved person, the next of kin of the person who's died. And in that conversation with them, we ask them two things. We explain the cause of death as it's going to go down on the medical certificate of cause of death to them. We ensure that they understand it and we talk to them in layman's terms about what it means. And we also ask them whether they've got any concerns or questions about the care that they received. We help to identify which cases require notification to the coroner. Um, and that's a work in progress at the moment in terms of rolling out to primary care uh, in, in the sense of how, how much help are we able to offer. It's not quite clear yet, but it's something I think that at a local process you'd be able to sort out with your local medical examiner officers. And then as part of the scrutiny, we inform the selection of cases for further review under clinical governance procedures. So any causes or concerns that are raised, we can alert trust to it. Our role, it's really important to say that our role is not to investigate concerns or any issues that either the bereaved raise or that the medical examiner raises. Our function is to alert practices to those concerns and then we leave them to, to investigate themselves using their own processes. So this is how we've been implementing medical examiner officers so far. And, and in, in Dorset, we've been up and running since October 2018. So we're one of the, the oldest medical examiner services. 
Um, but essentially during 2019 and 20, uh, NHS England and Improvement asked acute trusts to set up medical examiner officers to scrutinise the deaths that occurred there at the acute trust or site. And we're now in a position in the southwest and the southeast where every acute trust has an established ME service. Most trusts are up to at least 80% scrutiny of their acute cases, and a, a lot of a lot of trusts are now taking on community hospitals, hospices, with a view to extending out further to the community. So in 2021, those officers were asked to extend the scrutiny out to other deaths that occur locally. So like I said, community hospitals, hospices, and it's a precursor almost for moving out to primary care. That's been quite successful across the regions. Um, and, it, and it's just a bit of a, a baby step, so to speak, in terms of starting to look at community deaths. So, of course, we anticipate that extending um, scrutiny of non-coronial deaths out into primary care is a massive, massive task. In Dorset alone, we're looking at doubling the size of the service. We're going from 3,000 deaths a year in the east of the county to 6,000. And that's going to be replicated across the southeast and the southwest. So it's a significant piece of work. We're currently in the non-statutory phase and have been since 2019. We are anticipating that the primary legislation is going to go through um, in around about April 2022. Yes, I couldn't remember what year we were in then. Um, with some secondary legislation being written and um Personally, myself, I'm working to a kind of a June timeline for it becoming entirely statutory, but please, I can't swear to that. We are reliant on the government and it getting through Parliament. So, so because we understand the complexity of it, we have been careful to, to say to all regions that implementation should proceed incrementally. And how that's looking pretty much across the board at the moment is that a medical examiner office will try and find a couple of primary care networks to, to offer to act as pilot areas um, and extend out kind of by practice, by PCN, and then further out until in the end, eventually, we'll be able to do all of the PCNs in a particular area. So implementing the medical examiner service does not introduce any new requirement to view the body, and there is no need for a verbal discussion between GPs and the medical examiner most of the time. I would say, unless there's a particularly difficult uh, case where you're you're not quite sure whether it requires coronial referral or not, like I said, we could probably just work with a proposed cause of death from the GP. So we're aiming for a constructive and developmental approach. We're very aware of the year two years that GPs have had. We understand that a lot's been happening, the vaccination clinics, the, you know, the requirement to go back to face-to-face -to -face work and that practices have been put under an extreme amount of pressure in the last 12 to 18 months. We do not want to add to that pressure. We understand that it's going to become statutory at some point next year. And what we're trying to do is to implement this incrementally in as easy and as stress-free a way as possible, uh, our intention is really to, to try and alleviate any extra workload on the part of the GP um, and, and, and practice staff. So how that looks is something that's going to change over the next coming months. But I think it's well worth you thinking about engaging at an early time with your local medical examiner service to be able to shape that 
and, and to have a, a say in how it might look. So this is basically what I came here to tell you all, because <laughs> I know that's what everyone wants to hear. What are the benefits? Um, because we know that people just think it's going to be an extra load of work. So support with completion of medical certificate of cause of death, advice and guidance given to improve accuracy and reduce the number of rejected MCCDs. Um, we're able to offer advice lines where GPs can phone to ask. Apparently, I know that in a lot of areas, GPs will call the coroner's office. I also know that in Dorset, for example, that service is going to be stopping. And so we will be stepping into the breach, so to speak, and offering an advice line for GPs to, to ring and ask about proposed causes of death and giving guidance on anything as to whether it might be a referral or not. Supporting the bereaved. What we found from our initial talks with practices is that um, actually a lot of the time GPs have been telling us, I like to talk to the bereaved. I, I, I've known the family for a long time. I like to be, I, I want to be able to have that conversation. And this is not intended to replace that. Um, but what it will be able to do is it will be able to answer those day-to-day -day queries that come in and that will in turn alleviate practice staff and help reduce the workload, hopefully. So we can help to identify appropriate coronial referrals and support the referral process. Quite how that looks at the moment is not entirely clear. I think for some areas, they would be able to offer to do the full coronial referral, but equally we understand that some GPs would want to do that themselves. So again, something to be said for early adopting and helping to shape that. And also to help practices identify trends in care pathways to help you improve patient care through your constructive learning and through your morbidity and mortality processes. Um, I've got a little crib sheet here that I was given by one of our GPMEs um, because I have to say I'm not terribly au fait with things like System 1 and EMIS and I'm learning every day about it. But um, we're aiming for the whole process to be IT driven to reduce the admin burden. So we're going to use the task function on System 1 or on EMIS um, and the GP would essentially just need to add the suggested cause of death on there initially. And I would say probably the vast majority of the time, that's all that needs to be done. The GP will still need to um, complete the MCCD and sign it because they are the primary practitioner. When the digitization comes in of the MCCD, hopefully next year sometime, um, the two functions will come together and it will require a second signature by the medical examiner as well. So, um, what else have I got here? And oh, oh, also the final thing, education. Uh, we can keep practices up to date with changes in legislation, regulations. We can send out bulletins. We can provide frequently asked questions that we've been getting through the telephone advice line. And we can also engage with GP training um, should that be required. So, so I think on balance, there's, um, there's a lot good going on. I understand that there's probably going to be a bit of hesitation uh, and, and that there's definitely going to be a perception of this is just one extra thing that we have to do. Um, and yeah, to an extent, I'm like, yes, it's going to be statutory and we will all have to do it. But I just wanted to come on today and say to you all again, we are going to try and make this as easy and as straightforward as possible. I would encourage all of you to engage with your local medical examiner services as they get in touch with you over the next couple of months. Because if we're working together on this, I think we stand a much better chance of getting a, a system that works for everybody. But I hope it's been helpful. I hope, um, 
I've demystified a little bit about it. I've tried not to waffle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I understand also that you probably don't know very much about the service at all and so might not necessarily have questions today. You are more than welcome to contact me at any time if you have any questions at all and I am always available to answer them. Thank you. Thanks for listening. That's so helpful. That's, it's it's so interesting to hear this. And I, so I, Becky and I were talking um, earlier and I was saying, well, I was a practice manager. And I said, I don't know how different this is to what happens before because I don't really think I know what knew what happened before. So we said we might not have any many questions because people are also might be in that situation and really? or it might just have been me. But I think that <laughs> if you have any questions, do ask. But we are running a full-length webinar, aren't we, yes. on the 1st of November with you and your colleagues from around the patch, Becky? That's right, yeah. The regional medical examiners are joining us and also Amanda, the regional MEO for the South East, will be joined. So all four of us will be there. And that's from 1 till 2 and that's free and that's 30th of November. So I would encourage your GPs to get involved in this because they probably don't know too much. And I'm now going to sort of say, well, I don't know whether you want to come in now because you might, well, you will know a lot more than I do about what's currently happening and what the new situation is and what should, and obviously the, our audience is practice managers. So what should they be aware of and start to possibly bring to the attention of the GPs? Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Louise. And thanks very much, Becky. Um, it's all new to me as well. So um, <laughs> much appreciated summary. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, oh, firstly, I just wanted to um, say, because there's quite a few people here who may not know me. Um, I'm a new medical director at Wessex LMC. So I'm a GP by profession and I have been a partner in the GP practice in Southwest Hampshire for nearly 20 years now, um, which is terrifying. Um, and I'm delighted to join the team at Wessex LMC and hopefully use some of that small amount of experience to, um, to support the team and, and help you guys if you need me. Um, uh, I think that one of the issues that we, that general practice is likely to direct towards the medical examiner service, um, accepting that it's going to become a statutory service, is that at the moment, GPs provide what we consider as efficient a death certification process because historically we've needed to do it very rapidly. So we we are notified of a death. We think that we can complete the medical certification, the MCCD certificate. We think that we can do the cremation paperwork as a result of that, and we do it. And we do it all in one day, and it is released to the relatives, and it's gone. And the issue comes is if there's any delays, and the current examples are, would be that uh, if we are not sure of the cause of death, and therefore we do want to discuss it with the coroner's officer or with the coroner themselves. And then it sits with the coroner's officer and then we don't hear back. And then it comes back to us the following day. And of course, most GPs these days are either not there the next day and it's very difficult for that to be picked up. So I think one of the requests that, or one of the observations is, is that it's very important that the medical examiner's surface is really responsive and um, because otherwise it's going to cause lots of delays for patients. And at the end of the day, we want this to be efficient for the patients as well as ourselves. And um, when they're going through what, what is a pretty torrid time in their lives. Um, so that, that would be my first observation. Yeah. Um, we do like to discuss these things with the coroner's officers um, because quite often we don't know quite what to write. We're pretty sure, but mm-hmm. we'd like to know. So I guess my question for you, Becky, would be, is this going to be the medical examiners? Are they going to be able to replace the coroner's officers in saying, yes, that's okay. That seems like a sensible uh, a cause of death for this patient. And therefore, um, we're happy for you to go ahead and issue the medical certificate, the, the cause of death certificate, given what you've described. 
Yeah, absolutely. That it's it's a replacement service essentially in that in that aspect, and it's what we do in acute trusts currently. Um, that so medical examiners are considered to be the experts in death certification. Essentially, it's their specialism. Yeah. Um, you know, they know off the bat what's going to be acceptable, what's not. We know that registrars often go are very they abide by the list. <laughs> I think. <laughs> We also, uh, we tend to work very closely with local registration services. And so we know which, uh, you know, occasionally you have things that aren't on the cause of death list that, you know, you know, are going to get past the registrars as long as you're able to explain it to them. So, yes, the the intention is to provide. And I, I hear your point, Will, as well about delays. And that's that's the big thing that's coming out from every GP we speak to. So we're aiming for a 24 hour that same day service we're also very aware that we need to be looking at providing some form of out of hour service for things such as child deaths which are usually coronial referrals, faith deaths which we don't have so many of in the southwest but the southeast is a different story um so that's something that we're considering as part of the the rollout how do we how does an out of hour service look uh i think andy perbrick last time i spoke to him um at the lmc raised the point that a lot of GPs are part-time now. What do you do if someone dies at quarter to five on a Monday and they're not back until the Friday? So so that struck home for me. And, and it's something that we're definitely looking at. It's going to be a same-day service as far as possible to avoid any delays. Because we're like you. We don't want to leave the bereaved hanging on. you know. And we're also working to registration targets as well. So... Um, in Dorset, you use System 1 quite specifically. You mentioned tasking between System 1. Uh, other areas won't be so exclusive with regards to the mechanism and the IT system that they use. And I suspect some of the practice managers will be going, but we're on EMIS and then the practice down the road is on System 1. Yeah. Um, at least there's only two systems on the whole locally. Um, but but actually, it's it's how that communication is has to be embedded at the outset. And we don't want to be trying reinventing it as we go because that's where general practice and its other allied organisations tend to run into problems into that interaction, the interface and information flowing rapidly uh, mm-hmm. between us so that no one's left and that pe- uh, it has a good safeguard against uh, patients falling through the net as well. Yeah. Back at the start, when we were first talking about the rollout to, to the non-acute um, deaths, we were talking to GP. GP practices and saying, okay, so if the GP can just send us an email and then perhaps give us a call and, and every practice manager I spoke to was like, nah, that's not going to happen. You know, we don't have time for that. So that's when we started to specifically look at how can we embed ourselves into those systems. And, you know, we're, we're quite lucky in a lot of areas that they use primarily, you know, like in Dorset, it, it, I think it's system one throughout the whole of the county. Um but we know that other practices use EMIS. So there's a lot of work going on currently about how we can use the functions of those systems to make the, to make it seamless, essentially. Becky, we've had a question come in from one of the practice managers, from Jenny Dogs. She says, she may have misunderstood, but one of the most difficult parts we find is secondary care versus primary care and getting it all joined up when a patient dies. Is yeah. this designed to help smooth that? And will the ME be the same person for both primary and secondary care? Okay, good question. Mm. Um, yes, I guess in a way, I mean, I'm not sure what the, the, the specific issues between primary and secondary care uh, are being referred to, but I do understand that a lot of the time, the two are very separate and it is hard. In terms of speaking to the bereaved, yes, the ME, so the, we... 
we are an ind- I, th- I don't think I actually said this so and it's a key point we're an independent service although we're hosted by acute trusts um we they basically give us office space we're independently funded by the department of health we're not paid by the acute trusts we just basically squat <laughs> there in their in their offices um so yes what we do is we perform that function where we pull together uh, any secondary care that the patients had and the primary care um, and then obviously depending on where the person has died it will depend on whether it's the GP or the uh, the hospital doctor that does the MCCD but um, yeah I think it, it will certainly they, they will be able to access both sets of records so we'll be able to pull the story together as to what's been happening in this patient's last few weeks and months of life um, sorry, Louise, can you repeat the second part of the question? Yes, of course I can. She was just saying, um, will the ME be the same person for both primary and secondary care? Yes. So um, at the outset, I'm, I have particularly have been very aware that GPs are very keen on having GP medical examiners. And, and there has been some understandable suspicion about hospital consultants scrutinising primary care notes and there's been a you know and equally it, it runs both ways you know I have GPs that work as MEs within the hospital the intention uh, is that as the service evolves and uh, you know becomes more established a medical examiner is simply that a medical examiner and is able to to look at either primary care or secondary care deaths I think uh, in order to smooth the process and to enable the rollout in the next year it would be better to have um, a bit of a split in terms of having GP medical examiners undertaking the scrutiny portion. But eventually, yes, I want, I, w- I would personally, I would like them to be able to, to be able to do both. I hope that answers your question. No, that's really helpful. Thank you, Jenny. You haven't misunderstood. Great question. And I think a lot of nothing is a silly questions at the moment as we're all trying to unpick this and understand it. I think it's um, very important that people might this might have been the first time anybody's heard of this Becky so I think you might go back and reflect and as I say we are um, recording it and the slides will be available afterwards if you wanted to share this with your team Um, Will did you want to come in? Thank you just are there any data sharing issues with regard to consent for access to records that we need to be aware of the practice managers especially uh, tend to be the people that are in the know when it comes to data I'm a Caldecott guardian but I do what my practice manager tells me to do Um, (laughs) and and as such uh, I think that uh, the practice managers need to know about data sharing and any data sharing agreements with medical examiners because although the consent issue is less of an issue when someone is deceased actually it's having access to a database of patients whether they are deceased or not deceased that I think would worry about. Yeah. So yes, there are national data sharing agreements that have been developed. And I know that our program lead, the medical examiner program lead has wrangled with the confidentiality advisory group for many, many months to get them agreed. Um, and he's got a lot more patience than I have, I'll tell you. But um, he, it has been agreed. Uh, there is there, there's a legal order in place allowing the medical examiner staff so medical examiners and medical examiner officers to have access to GP patient records. Um, And there's data sharing agreements in place that we are able to share on an individual basis with each practice, um, which both both parties sign up to. Um, Happy to share them with anyone who wants to have a look at them, even, you know, prior to any pilots or whatever. Um, They're fairly straightforward. They've been, like I say, they've been through the confidentiality advisory group at government level. 
and a legal order introduced. So um, that I know that we've had a few questions raised about uh, timeliness and in terms of patients being marked as deceased. And I think there's, there's a bit of a work in progress going on with that at the moment, because the last thing anyone would want would be, you know, for a GP letter to be sent out or something because we were still looking at a deceased patient record, or, you know, as, yeah. as an example scenario. So there is work being done to, to ensure that that doesn't happen. But yes. Um, and we understand a lot of these processes are there pretty much there, but there's still a lot of work. And as you say, with this is the opportunity to get involved and refine the process if possible. Absolutely. So you said there's a Southeast and the Southwest. So Southwest is Dorset BSW. Uh, Southwest is covers... Um, yeah, so I'm thinking from oh, a selfish point of view. So I think right up to Bristol. So, so from a Wessex LMC perspective, yeah. yes, uh, Dorset, uh, some, so, some, so Maine's and North East Somerset and Swindon and Wiltshire. Swindon and Wiltshire. So they're, they're all so south. They're they're That's pretty unhealthy, yeah. isn't it? I know what I'm doing. So, yeah. the south, so there's their Western patch. And then Southeast will be Hampshire and Hampshire. Yeah, Hampshire, yeah, it's Southeast. So, okay. and what yeah. do you say? So, we're talking about first of April this coming in. We've got a webinar coming up at the end of November for the GPs. Is there yeah. anything else you think it would be helpful for perhaps managers to start thinking about or getting involved with right at the moment? Um, I just, I think what would be the most helpful thing at this point in time would just be for practice managers to all be aware that in the next month or two, I know in, in Dorset, we're, a letter is going to be coming out in the next week or so from Dorset CCG. Uh, explaining more and I suspect that that will be happening in Hampshire as well and in, in all the other regions yep. um, because it's proved it's proved to have landed quite well um, yes. because it, what it tells practices is that the CCGs have all been very involved they're very helpful they're very supportive as has been the LMC massively supportive um, and just to engage if they can please with um, their medical examiner services when they hear from them because that's going to be happening I would think in the next sort of six to eight weeks um, and, and and just to engage with them and to be able to, to you know, I would hope to, to, to work with them towards adopting an early approach while we're still in the non-statutory phase to allow us to iron out any, any, any issues. You know, I, I understand that for some, they, they're not going to want to, they'd rather wait until we become statutory and that's fine, but it means that you wouldn't get an opportunity necessarily to, change things yeah well, i think yeah. It, it, it's all you know, it needs the more to be well informed you are the yeah. better it's going to have to be isn't it so we can just say nothing's going to come as a shock um, but yeah. we massively appreciate your time today becky and i know very much really really helpful to perhaps manage to get a flavor um, of what is coming through um and as we said you'll, we've got your contact details so we'll share those on the website of the, of the various offices um and that would be really helpful so thank you for your time and i'm sure we will see you again and we'll certainly see you again at the end of november, the 1st of november <laughs> one till two is the more in-depth webinar for gp so do encourage everybody to attend that one so thank you becky that's great thank you so much for having me i really really appreciate it that's and i will see you all again soon Yes, thanks, Becky. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. So we'll now we'll go on to um, our normal just roundup of things that we think might be useful for you. Um, thank you, Will, for your input for that. That was really, really helpful um, to have the clinician's point of view and for introducing yourselves. I'm a very, a very welcome, a very welcome member of our team. Um, so I'm just going to hand over to Michelle now, who's going to start looking a little bit about um, access to records. Thanks, Louise. So you may be aware and you've probably received the email from NHS Digital, which informed practices about the acceleration of patient access to their records. 
And this, I believe, uh, is being... Uh, it will be different depending what clinical system you are on. So if you're on TPP, the plan is from the beginning of December. If you're EMIS, the, the, there are pilot sites um, being undertaken um, in December, but with a rollout of 2022, early 2022. I think just to be clear what this is, this is about uh, patients getting access via the NHS app to their medical records, and this will be prospective access. I think just before I say any more, the GPC are in discussion with regards to this with a view to requesting a delay given how busy general practice is we're just we're obviously entering winter and the concerns about the amount of work that this will cause for practices um, just managing the queries that are going to come in from patients in relation to this so we will keep practices up to date but as I say GPC are trying to negotiate a delay for this however just to be clear that TPP if that delay is not successful TPP the systems will be going live in December uh, at the beginning of December and EMIS is early next year I think the things just to really highlight to, to practices will be that actually um, when you're entering information onto any consultation or any any part of their medical record potentially uh, the patients can see that but it'll be prospective potentially not um, in the past so it's just to highlight this for you and I'm going to I think Louise is going to talk a bit about a, a meeting that's coming up yeah, we're just very conscious that um, information governance and redaction and data protection and a little bit like Will mentioned before about the protection of um, of data is becoming more and more important. I had a practice manager contact me to say, the person in my practice that did this mainly has now left and I feel I'm winging it and I don't feel confident and I don't think she's alone. So a few of us are getting together um, within our, our team. So Lisa Harding, who leads on information governance for the Wessex LMCs and um, John Childcraft, our Deputy Director of Primary Care, who's very good at this sort of information. We're going to look, look at us, the three of us, and just see what we've got planned for the next year to see if we can cover all bases. We don't want to overload you with education and resources, but we want to make it timely and effective and just useful for you. So we're aware of that. Um, we're, we are on it and we will do our best to provide you with the resources you need. But we do, we are beginning, to, it's like a snowball that's rolling, isn't it? And it's just gathering momentum and data all the time. And we're just conscious that that's a, another pressure um, for you at, at the moment. Um, thanks, Michelle. I think you wanted to go on about the Declaration of Earnings. Yeah, so I'm, the information I'm just about to read to you, and I'm reading it because it's critical that I get this correct, um, will be, it is now on our website, on our front page under Hot Topics. So as Louise has said, this is in relation to the declaration of GP earnings. So there is a contractual requirement for, uh, for the earnings declaration to be made by the 12th of November. Otherwise, the practice, not the individual GP, will be in breach of contract. For the BMA to make the recommendation not to declare earnings would be deemed industrial action, and this decision has not been taken yet and can't be as a certain time has to elapse after dispute has been raised before industrial action can be taken. Similarly, if the indicative ballot doesn't return a majority in favour of not declaring earnings, then there is unlikely to be a formal ballot calling for an industrial action on this point. This leaves everyone in a difficult position, hence the BMA statement that would support GPs who decided to take this action but can't yet recommend it. The LMC are not a trade union, so cannot make any recommendation. It is important to note that if you act as an individual by not completing, then the practice contract is in breach, so you should discuss with your partners and get agreement before you do this. 
Most partnership deeds contain a clause stating that any action by any individual that risks the GMS contract is a breach of the partnership agreement and could lead to expulsion. So anyone doing this must have consent of their partners. Any practice held in breach of a contract of contract would be subject to the normal breach procedures outlined in paragraph 70, 72 and 73 in Schedule 3 in the GMS regulations. This can include financial penalty, suspension or removal of the contract. It is important that the partners are fully aware of these potential consequences if you choose to support a partner in not declaring earnings above the threshold. There is a really useful BMA uh, website link, which I'm just about to put in the chat so everybody can see it. And as I've said, this statement is actually on our website um, and you can, uh, with the various links to the various pieces of information that I've mentioned. So that's all I wanted to say. Yes, I will put that link in in a second. And we realise it's important, but we, we, it's not something we can we can chat about because of the words are very important. And so thank you. That was really clear, that statement that you read out. That's very helpful. Um, and I think it's back to you again, um, Michelle, although I think Helene might um, come in for a little bit of this. The heat flu. Um, yes, so we just we've been made aware, and you may already be aware of this. So our apologies is that the national protocol for seasonal flu um, has recently been updated, as has the flu vaccine um, PGD. We are just um, unpicking this to understand what this actually means for practices, and we are going to send an email out uh, identifying what the changes are, what you need to do, and what you need to be aware of. But it was just to make you aware that there has been some changes to these, and we and you will get some further information shortly. Lovely. Helene, did you want to come in at all with that? Or? Uh, no, I mean, just to support Michelle, when, when we have it clarified, we will um, send the information out. The other thing is just to encourage all pregnant women to have both the flu and the COVID vaccines. That's really important. So if you can do that opportunistically, um, that would help enormously. And I'm not sure whether Michelle is going to mention it, but um, those of you who are listening to the radio this morning, you will be aware that um, it's supposed to be coming from the government that all health care professionals, certainly frontline staff, will it be mandatory to have the COVID vaccine in the spring. But I've just literally a few seconds ago been on the um, the website, the BBC, we tend to go on, or the Daily Mail, because they're more informative, um, and there's nothing being updated yet. So it should be released sometime this afternoon. Thanks, Lynn. Yes, of course, as soon as we know anything, we will let you know. I'm sure you've been hearing the rumours as we have. The words I heard on the radio this morning were patient-facing. It's people have a patient-facing, so it'll be interesting to see um, what the result of that is. Um, I think I was just going to finally mention at the end, um, we've got the self-care week. Um, it's the 15th to 21st of November, so that's next week. We've got some information on our website. This is on our Communicating with Patients page. So we've got the self-care link there. There's all sorts of things you can... Um, put up to encourage patients to look after themselves and other um, resources they can access. Um, there's also some Word documents you can download and customise for your own, put your own logo, put your own photos on. We're just trying to give you some resources to make it easier for you to liaise and, and communicate with your patients. We will keep doing that. If anything particularly want, do let us know. Um, we're also just really conscious it's such a difficult time for you at the moment. Um, we've had a, we had two resignations of practice managers yesterday, and a lot of it is workload and work pressure. We are here. We're here to help you whenever we possibly can. Um, there is a list of um, practice managers who have said they are willing to work in our area. Um, and so there's a, a sort of a locum list, um, so we can share that with people if they want to. There's also a locum list on practice index. I'm just, we just know it's tough. I've just spoken to Lucy Hadley from the development people, and we're talking about whether we can look at sort of more webinars to help 
team leaders, practice managers, and also staff who are going through a difficult time. Um, one of the practice managers who um, spoke to me in their last meeting, she said, the trouble is for me, my bucket is absolutely empty at the moment. Everybody's wanting me to give morale boosting um, talks, in, expecting me to give the energy. I've got nothing left. So if we can help in any sense, um, we've got practice managers support us, as you know, you can talk to any of us here. We've also got our Space to Thrive groups, which has helped some people because it's an opportunity to get together and to chat through some things, to thrash out some ideas. But we're going to try and get some sort of constructive webinars through the winter period, as we did last year. Little did we think we'd have to do it again this year. But should try and help you and your staff, because we know you cannot do it all. But we're going to try and help you to give the resources, because as we know, goodness me, if you lose the staff, that makes it really very, very difficult and everybody then gets overburdened so um, we will find something for you we will do what we can if you have any marvelous ideas please share them because we're very happy to share and we did hear one practice manager she had emerging practice and she put some balloons in the back of her um, waiting room and reception area, the number of patients that came in there with a smile on their face because they just loved the door. Oh, what's happened here? They said we're merging practices today. They said, Oh, congratulations, well done. And the whole thing was made a body smile. So sometimes we need to find some, some of those few little things um, to, to make people smile. But if we can do anything for you, we're here to help you. And um, we always will be. So just please do, do offer that. So, unless there's anything else, Michelle, Will, or Helene, I think there are no other questions. I think we'll say thank you very much and um, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks time. We've got public health coming. We're going to come and talk, talk about um, the IMS and um, screening programs and they've got some sort of practical tips to try and help you give messages to your patients, which should be really useful for you. So as we always try and do, we'll make it practical and relevant and we'll fire some questions at them um, and you please do the same thing and hopefully they'll be useful for you. So thank you very much. Goodbye and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.